0: Are here, my family and I moved here uh, about, I guess, last August, so about nine months ago, with a very specific purpose, very specific mission of planting a church out of Redeemer in Madison County. So, if you live out that way, if you happen to be here today visiting and live out that way, or if you live sort of towards that end of town, or be, would be interested in being a part of a new work, to be a part of a, a new mission which the very specific goal is to reach Madison County with the gospel, we'd love to have you join us. I'd be glad for you to come and talk to me afterwards. But regardless, please be in prayer for this new work that God is planting in Madison County. Let me pray for us as we approach our time in God's Word now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege is ours now to open your Word. We pray, I pray, that your spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired John to write these words, that he would now come, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that we might see and hear and understand your truth. And I pray that you would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we read our text, I want you to use your imagination with me for just a moment. I want you to think about... The following scenario. Just imagine um, this, this scenario. What if within your circle of closest friends, one of them were to become sick and extremely sick and receive really the, kind of the worst possible diagnosis and prognosis? And, and imagine that you and this circle of friends are gathered to pray for this person who is in the hospital, kind of awaiting. The worst possible sort of a situation, and then suddenly, as you're praying, there's a knock at the door, and and you go to the door, and there is your friend, completely restored. He says, I'm, "I'm completely well. It's all the disease is gone. I'm I'm fine." What would that be like? What would what would the environment? What would be the reaction in such a situation? What would it be like? I can imagine there would be there would be celebration. There would be great joy. Perhaps there would be a sigh of relief, sort of a. Yes, but, but what I mainly picture in my head is sort of a, a celebration, sort of a, a, a champagne cork popping, sort of a celebration of joy. Well, there, there's a situation that's comparable in the text that we're going to look at today. And so if you'll turn with me to John chapter 20, we'll look at that. I'm going to start reading with verse 19. John chapter 20 beginning with verse 19. This is the Word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. We had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Real quickly, the the context of this passage that we're looking at. This is the evening of Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. So the disciples have gathered together. It's no surprise that we would find them together on this particular evening. And I want you to think for just a moment with me about the sort of emotional roller coaster that this group has just been on for the past week from the very highest of highs on Palm Sunday when their master rode into town with everyone shouting joy and acclaim to him and praise to him to the very lowest of lows on Friday when he was crucified, that he died, he was put into a tomb. So they've been from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And now today, earlier in this day, this news has come to them from Peter and John and Mary Magdalene and a few other of the, others of the ladies of their, of their circle. This news that he's risen. So there's this glory and this confusion. There's this sort of a mixture of hope and and uncertainty. Maybe some skepticism still on the part of some. We know certainly on the part of some. They don't really know at this point whether they should be guarded or whether they should be thrilled. So there they are. And also our text tells us that they're afraid of the possibility of, of backlash from the religious leaders who were so opposed to Jesus that they put Him to death. And so there they are. The doors are locked. They're gathered. And Jesus comes to them. just as the, the grave clothes and the tomb could not hold Jesus, the locked doors did not prevent Jesus from suddenly just appearing in their midst. And He came. And He came to them to remove all doubt, to remove any confusion that there might be, to remove all uncertainty about the reality of what has happened but the conversation that ensues was for me just a little bit surprising in some ways. Because what John describes for us is not the sort of champagne cork popping celebration scene that we might expect, <clears throat> excuse me, nor was it simply to heave a huge sigh of relief and just kind of relax. Instead, Jesus has some very clear and pointed and succinct words for his friends here. He begins, though, with encouragement. That's the first thing I want you to see is is that that Jesus comes and he encourages us with the gospel. He begins with encouragement and comfort with the gospel. How do we see that? Well, the first thing that Jesus says is what? He says, peace. Why would he say, peace? Well, for one thing, he's just appeared in the room suddenly. (laughs) I mean, the, the doors are locked and suddenly there he is. So, peace. He says to them. But think, think again about the situation though. Think of the inward struggle going on within these followers of Jesus who had abandoned him just a few days before. When the pressure came, they fled. So I can imagine there could be some, some guilt, some fear. What is he thinking of us? How is he feeling about us? Thank you, my wife, very kindly bringing me some water. appreciate that. He knows my needs better than myself. Um, and so there's this internal, perhaps, turmoil going on with them, and also just the, the confusion of what's going on. But secondly, there is this, out, this external context of, of opposition, of fear, of this, well, how are the Jewish religious leaders going to respond to us? They just killed him. Now he's back alive. What's going to happen? so Jesus comes, and he, he speaks a word of peace, a word of shalom. Is the, the Hebrew word, shalom, which is an idea of, of well-being, deep, thorough well-being that is to characterize the people of God who understand their place with Him, in relationship with Him. And that's really what, what I want you to see here about this speaking of this word of peace. There, there's kind of two ideas going on. One is when we hear the word peace, we think of a sense of rest and tranquility, um, Uh, a a subjective emotional feeling of well-being. But then also, and more importantly, what is in play here is Jesus is speaking an objective word of peace. In other words, where there has been conflict, there is now peace. Where there was war, where there was alienation, now there is reconciliation. And Jesus speaks that word of peace to them, an objective word of peace that moves them from fear To gladness is the word that our text uses. To a place of gladness in one word. But the word that Jesus speaks of peace here isn't just coming as as, as an emotional word of well-being. It is coming as a result of the reality of what He has just accomplished on our behalf at the cross. Because of the cross... Because of His resurrection, there is now peace. That's the way that He can come to them and speak peace and encourage them with His peace. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. And has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Where there was hostility, there's now peace. Where there was fear, there is now joy and gladness. And Jesus has brought that about through the cross and through His resurrection. Also in Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say this through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we what we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is peace. There is peace in which we now stand. The peace that Jesus pronounces over us. That is the new posture that we have in Him. And that is a great encouragement and comfort to His disciples here and to us. And let me just ask you the question. I think we should pause for a moment here. Do you know peace in your life? Where in your life today do you need a sense of peace? Where is there conflict or alienation, or fear, or anxiety. Think about those areas in your own life, because I, I can tell you, at least for me, that very often, uh, you know, even as a, f- a follower of Christ, that, that I, as I look as I look into my own heart and as I look into the circumstances surrounding me in my life, it feels a whole lot more like conflict or anxiety or fear than it does like peace do you want that to be different do you want there do you want there to actually be peace not unsettled anxiety fear conflict Jesus holds that out to us today he holds peace out to us by virtue of what he has accomplished at the cross and in his resurrection Jesus who said come unto me all you who labor all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls that is message, that word of hope, that gospel truth based on the finished work of Christ is yours for the taking today. And, and regardless of where you are coming in this room today, where you may find yourself spiritually, I would encourage you to em- embrace the peace that Jesus offers you through faith in Him. So peace is the first thing that he says. What is the first thing that Jesus does in our text? He says peace, but then what does he do? He shows them his scars. He shows them the holes in his hands and in his side. And John says that seeing that, they were glad. Why are they glad? Well, they're glad because they're having confirmation and and have now confidence in what I just said, which is that Jesus has finished the work on their behalf. He's completed it. That's why He showed them the scars. He wanted them to see the fact that I've gone to the cross and I bear in my own body the signs of my suffering and death for you. And now I have risen. I'm alive. You can touch me. You can feel me. In Luke's account, Jesus says, Do you have something to eat? Here, give me a piece of that fish. And He eats it, showing them that He's real and alive. He's not just some spirit who floated into the room. He's real. He has accomplished the salvation of Of his people, the glorious work of redemption is complete. It's finished. And so he's confirming for them his victory over sin and death and hell by showing them his scars, the holes in his hands and his side. The grace of assurance and hope has come to them. That's the encouragement that Jesus brings through the gospel. Now, what? What next? The things that Jesus says next to me are surprising at first glance. There's no sitting back to just sort of bask in the glow of the moment here on the part of Jesus with the disciples. Instead, he immediately says, "What he says, I'm sending you. I'm sending you." So here's the first really big, or really the big idea that I want I want us to take away from this text today. And this brings us to our second point: that we're sent. With the gospel. And that is that being comforted and encouraged by the gospel and being sent with the gospel are virtually simultaneous in this passage. Being comforted and encouraged with the gospel, excuse me, by the gospel, and then being sent with the gospel are virtually simultaneous in this passage. And you think about, if you look at the text, how much time does does he give them? Um, after he confirmed the truth of, of, his, of his resurrection, his victory over death, how long does he give him just sort of to enjoy that reality? Maybe a few seconds, and he's right into, so I'm sending you as the Father sent me. When, you, when you've had a, a, a really long, hard day or week or month, very demanding, perhaps physically or even or emotionally, you know what do you want to do? Again, if you're like me, I like to have a chance just to sort of sit back and relax, sort of. Recover a bit. We, sometimes we use the term decompress. I need, I need to decompress. I don't see really any decompression uh, being allowed here by Jesus. We can't allow ourselves, as, as followers of Christ, those of you here who are followers of Christ, we can't allow ourselves the perspective that, that we need to be encouraged for a while first before we can think about being involved in the mission of Jesus. In fact, if that's our perspective, that we've got to sort of be encouraged a while, and then later we can do that, we'll never get to it, will we? I mean, there's always going to be enough chaos and turmoil in your life. If you're waiting for that to sort of settle down, it's never going to settle down. You know, as, as a, I've seen this in, in a different sort of context as a pastor. I've been a pastor for about 20 years now in different contexts. But talking to um, to young men who are, thinking about perhaps asking a young woman to marry him oftentimes you'll hear language well if i can just sort of get everything just right i don't feel quite comfortable that everything's the way it needs to be set up yet um, then maybe then i'll ask her to marry me well there's probably some other issue of fear in play there right it's not just needing to get everything in order and and, or even sometimes maybe a couple they're trying to sort out when should we have children well if we can get a little more established financially i'm not saying you shouldn't be wise and prudent And think through those things. But the reality is we can always come up with excuses, right? Well, I think that illustrates the idea that we don't sit back and wait. We engage from day one, from moment one. As we are being comforted and encouraged by the gospel, we are sent by Jesus with the gospel. The only decompression that I see in in this text would be, Decompressing in a very clear and intentional direction, which is out. Think about a a spring, and you press that, you compress that spring. When you allow it to decompress, it's going to fly in a very specific direction, right? With a lot of force and a lot of purpose. That's the only decompression that I see going on here. That's our release. We are propelled by the gospel, by Jesus, into mission. What I hear in Jesus here is there's work to be done. I've expended myself completely on your behalf. Now let's go. We don't need a ticker tape parade, a victory party. We just need to go and begin to touch the lives of the people around us who are hurting. There's people to love. There are lives to reach. There's comfort of the gospel to bring to other people. There's encouragement of the gospel to bring to other people. There's the the rebuke of the gospel that needs to be brought to other people. So we look at verse 21, where he says that even as the Father sent him, so he sends them. The marginal note of the ESV study Bible is helpful and gets it right, where it says this, the culmination of John's entire presentation of Jesus as the one sent from the Father is here. The sent one has become the sender. Jesus was sent by the Father on a very specific mission. And that was to accomplish the salvation of His people at the cross and through His resurrection. And now that sent one has become the sender and He is sending His disciples on mission. You know, John clearly articulated his, the purpose in writing his gospel at the end of this chapter. And he says that it is the, the, that we might present this picture of Jesus Why? so that people would believe and have life in the name of Jesus. And so, here it is. Jesus is sending them out on that very mission to to proclaim the gospel of Jesus that people might believe in Him and have life that is real life. Life in the name of Jesus. It's all through John's gospel. So what we're seeing in this narrative is that our reception of the gospel and all the benefits that come with the gospel are virtually simultaneous with our being sent with the gospel. What I also want you to notice about our being sent is that... Being sent is a part of the very identity of the follower of Christ. It's who we are. It isn't just something that we do. It is, it's who we are as God's people. And the, the Greek word for being sent here is a very strong word. It, it can mean to thrust. It's the idea of being propelled, as I've already said. Like I said, that, that spring that's, that's recoiling, all that bound up energy is sent in a very clear direction for a very clear and specific mission purpose. Also, interestingly, the the Latin word for send or sent is mito, from which we get what word? Mission or missionary. A missionary is literally a sent one. But it isn't just missionaries as we tend to think of them. It's it's all followers of Jesus are sent ones. It's it's the same idea that we see in uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to His people, he says that you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, I command you to go be the light of the world. Or I command you to go be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the light of the world. My people, my disciples are the light of the world. We are sent by him. All followers of Jesus are sent ones. It's our nature It's not just something we do, it is who we are. Mission is who we are as followers of Jesus. So, rather than, when you hear the word mission, or when you think about mission, rather than thinking that as something that you do, you know, once a a year when you go on a mission trip overseas, or or once a month when you go and serve at the local ministry that you volunteer with, or something like that, instead think of it as, as every day, all the time, every interaction, engaging every relationship, every opportunity as a follower of Christ. We're a sent people, and everywhere we go, we go with the gospel. We go with the truth that we have been encouraged and comforted by the reality of the finished work of Christ, and we now take that with us every step of the way. As people who've been given peace with God, and who've had that reality of redemption confirmed to us, we now go into every sphere of influence, in our life with that gospel. Followers of Jesus are people who are now in right relationship with God through the gospel, in community with each other, and then simultaneously on mission with the message of the gospel. And those things are inseparable. That The, the truth of who we are in Christ and then what He's called us to do and who He's called us to be are inseparable. And what that means is that everything that I do matters. It's not just when I come to church on Sunday or when I go to the service project on Saturday or when I go serve in in the mission on whatever day of the week I do that. But everything takes on significance. It all matters. Jesus sends us. So mission is the very heart of who we are. I want to elaborate just a little bit more on this as we think about Jesus and how clear he was about the mission that he's sending us on. Because in in all of the Gospels, he elaborates on that. And I want you to look with me. I'm going to read a few passages, and you can just listen as I read them. But how specific Jesus is about where this Gospel is to go, to whom it is to go, and to what effect. In Matthew 24, 14, we read this. This Gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The end will come only after this gospel has been proclaimed to all nations throughout the whole world. Also in Matthew 28, very familiar to many of you, the Great Commission we call it, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And also in Acts 1, verses 7 and 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth, Jerusalem and Judea and also to the end of the earth. And then finally in Luke 24, the parallel account of this very passage in John 20 that we're reading today. He says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So I want you to notice the the comprehensive language Jesus uses. The whole world, all nations, Jerusalem, which is the immediate city, vicinity, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus leaves no place, no nation, no people group out, It doesn't say just go to the easy and most accessible to you. Don't go to to the least resistant, where you'll be sure to have success. He says to all people. And he says we're to continue to preach this gospel of the kingdom how long? Until he returns. And what are we to preach and teach? We're to preach repentance and the good news of the kingdom, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is a very comprehensive message that Jesus has for us. One more thing I want you to see about this mission though is the end that's in view because we get a glimpse of that in Revelation. Listen to Revelation 7 and this is what Jesus has in mind when He sends them and when He sends us. This is the picture that God allowed John to see of what this mission is all about. Revelation 7, 9-12 through 12, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. And thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is the the end in view of mission. This worship of God as the one true living God, the triune God, the only one who is worthy to receive blessing and glory and dominion and power and wisdom. But notice the description of the group. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all the tribes and peoples and language. So that glorious picture, coupled with the comprehensiveness of the mission before us, gives great significance to my little life. My little seemingly insignificant life. Jesus said, no, I send you. Just as the Father sent me. Just as the Father sent me. I'm sending each one of you. Now, So there is this great privilege that comes with that. But I think if we're honest, it's really overwhelming. If you think about the fact that we are given the task of of reaching every people from every tribe and language with this comprehensive message of the gospel. That can be overwhelming. In fact, if it's not overwhelming, then you're not thinking clearly about it, not thinking carefully about it. And we've got to be willing to to look around us and think about what it means and, and where the needs are. To see, I mean, right in your own neighborhoods, in your school, in your office, in your own family, the effects of sin, the crushing brokenness of the fall all around us. Look at that, let it sink in then we go with the gospel to all those places. We go in our brokenness, in our weakness, with the, with the gospel to all those places. And we, and we also, as, as a church, ought to be willing to think about the fact that there are still over 3,000 people groups that are characterized as unreached and unengaged. In other words, there are people groups out there that don't have anyone speaking to, of Jesus to them. No one's bringing that good news. They have no access to Jesus. But then there's also those right down the street, right in your neighborhood, right around the corner, in your office, in your school, etc. So, in the case of of, of all these, we have the opportunity to take the gospel, whether it's difficult or, or easy is not the point. We take the gospel trusting Jesus to be at work. And it is overwhelming, and it should be overwhelming. And and you can't do it, and I can't do it, and it is way too much. And that's why Jesus closes this passage out the way he does. Because it is too much for us. And so when you look at this and you go, that's too much, it's too difficult. Here's what we look at as we close, verses 22 and 23. and And when he had said this, in other words, and when he had overwhelmed them with this huge task of being sent, just as he had been sent by the Father, what does he say to them? Look at verse 22 again. He breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He immediately takes action on their behalf to encourage and to prepare and to enable and equip them for what seems like an impossible task. He breathes on them. That sounds a little bit strange to us, but... The word breath in Hebrew, ruach, literally in spirit, it's the same word that we see in Genesis 2 where, G, where God breathed life into Adam. It's Jesus, it's God breathing the Holy Spirit onto them. It's a picture of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a foreshadowing, an anticipation of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on His people so they would have power to, to go and to preach the gospel so that lives could be changed by the power of God. Of the gospel. So Jesus doesn't just overwhelm us with a, a difficult task. He equips us Himself for that task by breathing His Spirit on us, by giving us, blowing His Spirit onto us. And then He also gives us authority. He talks about forgiving sins. You and I have no authority in us to forgive sins, but He has given that authority in the preaching of His Word, in the proclamation of His truth, in the telling of the gospel to forgive sins. I'll just ask you, as I ask myself, do you need forgiveness today? Do we not all need forgiveness? We have that message to hold out to people who are feeling crushed under under guilt and condemnation. Whether they're really even maybe at times in touch with the fact that they're feeling crushed under guilt and condemnation, the reality is we are apart from Christ. And he says we go with the gospel, which is forgiveness, bringing forgiveness. So the result of the gospel empowerment is equipping us to go as God's people wherever He sends us. So for us, coming off the spectacular high of Easter, our celebration of Easter a week ago, and remembering the death of Christ on our behalf anew and afresh and and His resurrection. And any time we revisit the cross, what is the result to be? It is that we are propelled, that we are thrust, that we are launched, that we are shot out of a cannon, whatever metaphor works for you, with that gospel to take it to those in our spheres of influence. And think of it this way. Is it possible that we could look at what the reality of all that Jesus has done for us and then just sit there? Then just sit there with that truth? No. We take that to the world. So let me just close this out. First of all, speaking to To some here who may be not believers or not sure where you stand spiritually, and if that's where you are, we're so glad that you have come here today. You may be sitting here listening to this and offended at the very idea that these followers of Jesus would come out seeking you as as some sort of a mission, like a mark on a mission. Um, That's not the way we view it. We're coming with the love of Christ to offer hope to those Who And I hope that today, perhaps in a new and a fresh way, you've seen a need for peace. That you've recognized a need for peace. Peace with God. And that that peace can only be found in Christ. Are you willing to consider today how serious Jesus is about having you as His child? That He'd be willing to go to the cross, die in your place, be raised from the dead, and then send His followers to take that love of Jesus to you. And for those of us here who are followers of Jesus, so often our engagement in mission is anemic. It could be for a number of reasons. There's a few possibilities. One is we do sometimes, I think, want time to sort of get ready and get strengthened and get encouraged and get comforted before we go. We've seen in our text that Jesus doesn't give us that that, uh, opportunity. I think also sometimes we forget the reality and the and the personal implications of the gospel, and that we have that hope to offer to the world. Um, Sometimes we're hesitant or afraid because we don't understand that we're sent with Jesus' authority, with His power, not our own, and that He's going to draw people unto Himself. But my question to to myself and to you, would we be be okay today with just enjoying these benefits for ourselves, or will we respond not in fear, but in hope and take the gospel to the world around us. And look at your life. Does your life reflect the priority of mission? The decisions you make? Are you willing to make decisions that aren't just going based on what's going to be most beneficial to me, most comfortable for me, most safe and secure for me, but instead what does the gospel demand? What does my sentness, the fact that I'm a sent one, demand? I want to close with just a quick story. A couple of years ago, I went to a pastor's conference, a large gathering, Many, I think there was ten or 15,000 people at this conference, and there was a guy sitting next to me in one of the sessions that I'd never seen before, never met before. He was a young man, I'd say in his 20s, from India, and he was in the United States studying, preparing for, for ministry, being trained. He was in seminary. And he was describing where he came from. He showed me pictures of his children, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and a, a six-month-old, beautiful, precious children. And he's describing a context where the particular area where he's from is very hostile to the gospel. It's, in fact, dangerous to be a Christian in that context. So I'm asking him about his plans for after he finishes his training. What are you going to do? And he said, oh, I'm going back to India. Without hesitation. There was no sense of, oh, well kind of dangerous there. I think I'll stay here. I can find a church to work in here or something. No, he, he said, without hesitation, I'm going back to my people. And he said, literally said, even if it means that I'm going to die, I'm going back with the gospel. I can't be stopped by risk or, or danger to me because there are people that need the gospel. What about us? What about us even today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your determination And commitment to have a people for yourself. So determined that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to live and to die in our place. That you raised him to life victorious over sin and death. Thank you that now you have said to us who are your followers, those of us who have been touched by the truth of the gospel that you're sending us, and I pray that you would give us grace to follow you with boldness wherever it is that you may call us, down the street, next door, or overseas, or wherever it may be, to live the gospel and to speak of the gospel, to preach the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.